Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box on Macquarie Radio, NTS News Talk Sport, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley and we've got two hours packed with football coming your way. In many ways, it's been a surreal week for football. Solid World Cup qualifying wins for the Socceroos bookended the horror of the Paris attacks where the game tragically became part of an international crisis. We'll talk through both parts of the story and look into next year and just how the French will go about delivering a safe renewal of the 2016 Euros. Shortly, program reporter Mark Van Aken from the Green and Gold Army will join us to wrap up the week in the World Game. Then former Notts County man and 250-game veteran of the Victorian Premier League, Dean Hennessy, will be in to look at the A-League. A man who's become one of the modern-day faces of the game in Australia, Fox Sports' Adam Peacock, joins us to talk about his great new book, That Night, a decade on the story of Australian football's greatest night, and we'll talk Socceroos with Ben Summerford to wrap up the first half of the show. In the second hour, we'll reflect on the legacy of Frank Glowey in two parts with the Sydney Morning Herald's Sebastian Hassett about Lowy's effect on the game on the pitch and the financial review's John Stensholt about where the outgoing chairman leaves the game off the park. And, of course, our weekly look at the European game with former Brighton and Hove Albion insider Ben Soro-Perez. Before we wrap it up, it'll be stoppage time back with Mark and in the studio he'll share some of his quirky observations on the week in football. Edge, it's good to see you again, mate. Great to see you, Rob, and what a uh, what a week it's been, really. Um, been an ABC football week. Mm. Um, what a, um, Ange Postacoglu, an Australian story. Yeah. Uh, we had then, the uh, obviously, the Lee Sales documentary on mm. the failed World Cup bid. And... Um, Obviously, a big night in in Sydney too, with the celebration of uh, ten years since uh, we qualified for the World Cup against Uruguay, uh, and the end of an era. Chairman Frank, and we're going to talk about that yep. later on. But yep. uh, before we do any more of that, let's throw to our man who's got the news, Mark Van Aken. G'day, gentlemen. Uh, Dominic Bossy off the top uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald, speaking of the Herald, uh, had a story. Now, not the sexiest bit of news. However, uh, he broke a story yesterday. There's been a big shake-up in a National Youth League, which will impact older players in the A-League more than the youngsters, according to the uh, Sydney Morning Herald journalist. As early as mid-Jan, A-League players returning from injury will have no access to competitive football games below the top tier due to a restructure. So basically what's happened here, the National Youth League for this summer season has been completely uh, pulled back. And as of Jan Feb, uh, the National Youth League teams from all the A-League clubs will go into the NPL at each state. But they're basically restricting it, they being the FFA, to three designated players. Now, the whole point of the Youth League One is obviously a youth development system, but at the same time, it's also effectively a reserves competition. So what we're going to see is basically uh, if you've got a player at the end of the A-League season or even into the finals who gets injured, needs a little bit of a run to get back in, they're not going to have any competitive platform to do it, which is just uh, a bit bizarre. Mike? Uh, Reeks of cost-cutting to me, but um, I think that's... uh I mean, you've told the story pretty well. Yeah, it's but cost, not a good scene. Yeah, but okay, but what? For me, it, 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 look. Hopefully, we might examine this because it's only sort of broken over the last twenty four hours. Examine it next week because it cost cutting. But why? How? So, for example, Guy Finkler uh, gets an ankle injury for the victory. You know, round twenty six or round twenty four is out for a couple of weeks. Wants a run in the youth team uh, in the NPL. Uh, say round twenty seven of the A League. 
there's no where's the cost in that it, it's just it just seems rules for the sake of rules anyway uh, we might give FFA the right of reply on that in the coming weeks uh, Stephen Lowy as we're going to touch on a much later Stephen Lowy the uh, son of Frank uh, was elected FFA chairman this week with cries of nepotism from sections of the Australian football fraternity Lowy Jr. doesn't agree with the questions being asked nothing was handed to me my father didn't hand the reins over to me would the criticism be there if my name wasn't Lowy I'm not so sure um, but uh, I needed to go through a process, just like everybody else, that I had the credentials and I had to prove through that process that I had the credentials. Well, the reality is I understand that uh, sentiment, but your name is Lowy. So, uh, you know, you've you got to understand where some of it's coming from, uh, Robert. Exactly. And, and, and how has this been managed in the public eye? As far as we're concerned, no one's heard of Stephen Lowy before outside of the Westfield business community. This all emerged re- relatively late in the piece. They must have known this was going to happen for a long, long time, and uh, and they were obliged to, to to handle it better, especially in light of the the failed World Cup bid and and a lot of the the stories that went on around that. Uh, they've they've handled this in a in a ham-fisted fashion, and it's just not a good look, unfortunately. No matter how qualified he is, I hope he becomes one of the greatest administrators in the history of Australian sport, and we'll acknowledge him on this program for doing just that. But at the moment, it's just uh, being poorly poorly handled. Well, may you say that. Right? However, Chairman Frank does not agree. Well, it's ridiculous to suggest it's hereditary. I mean, there was a process, an independent process by a nomination committee. They used an external advisor. I had nothing to do with it. You can understand the public perception. Well, I can understand lots of things, but the fact is that we've got to have a successful football organization on the table. Who is the best suited for it? If it's not him, who else would it have been? No other people came to the fore. There were no other people recommended. He was the only one, and he's, I believe he's very qualified. What do they think? What do they do? The fact is that Australia needs a successful football organization. He has been chosen, recommended by independent people. Why shouldn't he be able to, to do that if he's qualified? Now, that audio has come courtesy of Fox Sports, and the other voice you heard there was, of course, none other than Simon Hill. But uh, I tell you what, he's getting a bit angry, Frank, but Michael, I mean, who else could it be? (laughs) There was no one in this entire country of 23.5 million people that could possibly do this job. I think they just need to tell the truth. I mean, Stephen is probably the best candidate for the job. Um, He just happens to be Frank's son. Um, There was The the independent uh, process wasn't really independent. It was chaired by Brian Schwartz, who's... Frank's long-time advisor. You know, so it's not as if it's... Uh, let's just tell it the way it is. Um, I actually personally think Stephen Lowy is uh, suitably qualified. I think he's... Um, I think he, he loves the game. He's got a, a strong pedigree in it. But let's just tell the truth. He's Frank's son. He got the gig. This sounds like Tony Wormsley's worldwide search for Tony Wormsley last year at the Central Coast Mariners. Uh, but look, uh, look. before we move on, uh, again, to, to echo your thoughts there, Michael, uh, Stephen is an eminently qualified person. He's a CEO of, uh, co-CEO of Westfield. Uh, in 2010, he was made a member of the Order of Australia for Service to Business, Philanthropy, the Arts and Medical Research. And he's a big man in town and a big man in the business end of town. So that's great. But just stop oh, it was trying Stephen to... or Rem Nogarotto. I mean, at the end of the day, 
I'm big in Stephen. Yeah, and, and to, to wrap it up and allow you to go on, you're trying to t- sell it to us, but we're just not buying it, boys. Yeah, well, I'm preaching to the choir by the sounds of it. Anyway, uh, this one just broke uh, overnight. Adelaide Oval will host the Socceroos in an important uh, World Cup qualifying clash in March. That's according to the Adelaide Advertiser. Ange Postecoglou's side will face either Tajikistan or Jordan on Thursday, March 24, where they did sell someone a dummy, though, in the Advertiser. They're saying, oh, it's a big Socceroos clash. No one's told them we've already qualified for the next round, guys. It's... This is going to be basically a, a glorified friendly, but it is great to get back to the Adelaide Oval uh, for some Socceroos football. Uh, moving on, more Socceroos news or ex-Socceroo defender Luke Wilkshire is back in the Russian uh, Premier League, or they might actually be the Super League over there, after signing a one-year deal with Terek Grozny uh, yesterday. 34-year-old has been uh, on the lookout for a new club for the last three months after he was released by Dutch club Feyenoord prior to the new season. I'm not sure, this is a bit of a visual gag, guys, but uh, I think it was not to do with his football, more to do with his hairstyle. He's kind of rocking an Eminem kind of hairstyle towards the end there in Holland. So uh, I don't think they put up that so. sort of. I don't think Vladimir Putin have put up that kind of uh, caper. Oh, but... He's an open-minded guy, Vladimir. What about the what the Pussycat Dolls? Remember them? They sang a couple of controversial songs, and he put him in jail. That's what you do over there. Fair enough. Okay, Australian uh, star Mass Luongo is good enough to grace the shirt of English Premier League giants Arsenal, according to Harry Redknapp, the man who handed him his debut with their arch rivals Tottenham four years ago, according to the World Games, David Lewis. Uh, I know Harry's a big Mass fan, but Mass just has to worry about getting back on the park at QPR rather than a move to the Emirates, doesn't he, boys? Huge potential. Mass, huge potential, but uh, I'd like to see him maybe end up with 10 or 11 goals uh, this season for QPR and a lot more time than, he, than he's getting at the moment. Yeah, and look, he had that wonderful Asian Cup and uh, maybe this is the, the sort of the post-World, post-Asian Cup letdown that he had to have, uh, to quote Paul Keating, and uh, he'll come back hopefully bigger and better than ever. You'd think so. He's got the talent. He's done it before. Yeah, he's a little bit off the boil, Mass, but uh, he'll, he'll get back. Uh, we certainly hope so, and we think he can. Uh, some bad news on the women's side of the ledger. Uh, last weekend, Perth Glory's uh, what for? Sam Kerr, apologies boys uh, hurt her left foot, uh, ruling her out of the remaining Westfield W League games and it's looking like it's going to be about a six uh, sorry, a three month injury which now puts her in doubt for the Matildas AFC Olympic qualification series in February big blow for her, Perth and Australia Yeah, she just didn't uh, strain her ligaments she ruptured them so that's a surgical uh, repair which is a, a long wait on the sidelines for her we, we wish her well, she's a, she's a great girl and, and I noticed on Twitter today and yesterday she was up and about which is great. bit of mail on Aaron Moy who's obviously the most talked about Socceroo at the moment. Uh, I've certainly been questioning when he's going to get a move back overseas the 25 year old of course started his uh, professional career over in Scotland. I've been pushing for January. The popular opinion is he won't leave until the end of the year but I've got some mail this week that he ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, Basically the 25, I've already said he's 25 uh, he's on a massive contract at Melbourne City. They see him as a long term prospect at the club and his move overseas, which many of us see as, as imminent, is not necessarily so. Well, good news for the A-League, if that's the case. He's with the right club. They've certainly got the dough. So hopefully Aaron Moy stays around and, uh, and entertains us for a little while. And, and that may be an insight into the future. And uh, and uh, hopefully more talented players like him stay with their A-League clubs. Yeah, look, I, I obviously didn't get uh, all the details, but it did seem that uh, he's, you know, most players just have a simple out clause to go overseas, mm. uh, which he does have, but the price tag attached to it is very, very high. So it's very unlikely that he'll uh, be seen overseas, which, as you said, it, it's good. It's very good for Melbourne City because they've had all sorts of problems. Uh, I know you're going to touch on it a little later in the show with Dean Hennessy when he talks about the A-League. Uh, he's back this weekend for, for Melbourne City, and boy, did they miss him 
last week. So uh, Aaron Moy, prodigious talent. But is it best for the game, though, Rob? Because it ultimately, I want to see him go overseas. I want to see him test himself in the championship, maybe the Premier League, maybe in the Bundesliga. Uh, it's good for his growth as a footballer. Yeah, you're right. Look, it's a, it's a, it's a double-sided uh, sword, that one, and we just don't know the answer to that. But as you say, Dean Hennessy's coming up. Great work there, Mark. Dean Hennessy up after the break with the A-League wrap. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley on News Talk Sport NTS on digital radio, streaming on the NTS app. You can also search for us on NTS on TuneIn Radio, all thanks to our great mates at Chemist Warehouse. And we welcome Dean Hennessy. Dean, for the A-League, last night, Melbourne victory, good win against the Central Coast Mariners. Yeah, no, look, uh, another good victory, uh, decent performance. And, uh, you know, as it stands right now, that puts them joint top Brisbane with obviously the the game tonight, and obviously that might change, but it's uh, you know it's put Vitry right back into into the mix, and they will have still a game in hand. With Guy Finkler and his goal scoring boots on too in the first half, uh, pretty much took the game away. Good, good player is uh, Guy Finkler. He was he was good in all the counters that we played against them, and he's I think he's got off to a really good start again this season. Let's have a let's have a look at tonight's game though, Dean. Uh, Brisbane Roar and Melbourne City. Um, Melbourne City, um, being yo-yo up and down, obviously. Uh, there's the, the Melbourne City with Aaron Moy. There's the Melbourne City without Aaron Moy. Everyone's talking about it. Um, what do you think they can uh, turn up with in Brisbane tonight? Yeah, look, I think, Edge, they were disappointing last week at home to Western Sydney Wanderers. I mean, I thought they were totally outplayed for the vast majority of the game. And obviously, you know, the Wanderers were very good. But they need to bounce back. They did it, obviously, as you say, without Aaron Moy. Um, we know how good he was playing for Australia on that carpet in Bangladesh. <laughs> um, and, you know, the boy's just quality. We mentioned it uh, last week on the show. You know, he's got to be the best midfielder in the A-League. And, you know, for me, he'll be going overseas shortly. It's just a matter of where. But, you know, he can make a difference. He can actually maybe turn this around. I mean, Brisbane haven't got their scoring boots on, even though I keep promising every week to you guys that they will. But, uh, in fact, that, I just want to touch on that. The Enrique goal last week, you know, obviously he just come back from the injury and then to score pretty well was one of his first touches and ended up in tears. It was quite an emotional one, but a really important three points for Brisbane. So, look, I think it's going to be a good game. I think it'll be quite open and entertaining. And uh, I'm not going to promise goals, but I still think Brisbane uh, will, will, um, will win and go back top again. So, the LOC boys in Brisbane, do you know? Um, they're obviously... Um, you know, John's had that experience at Melbourne City or Melbourne Heart it was when he was there. It wasn't a very good one. Um, there was obviously some doubts about his coaching ability moving forward, but um, they have started the season on fire and really do deserve their equal lead status with Melbourne Victory at the moment. Yeah, look, I'm really pleased for John. I mean, obviously, we, we all know we've been celebrating for that 10-year celebration of the goal that he scored and... You know, most probably everybody remembers him from that, and that's how it all started, even though we've all known him for a long, long time. I actually played with his brother, Ross, before, you know, when he was a young lad playing in the old Premier League down in Melbourne. Um, but I think maybe, you know, and there was always a bit of scepticism about having two brothers together, but it seems to be working. I know the Cooman brothers do it at Southampton, but it seems to be working at Brisbane. And, um, and I think, to be fair to John, I think he will have learned a lot from his experience at Melbourne City and the things he would have learned he's most probably improved on and, and making sure it works at Brisbane. And Edge has already mentioned Aaron Moy. What Melbourne City turns up, John Van Skip, uh, he, uh, he's proven to be uh, a solid coach but not a coach that can perform can, or 
get his team to perform consistently um, often enough. Uh, surely if he doesn't uh, uh, get some uh, uh, result out of the, the team in the next month or so, there's going to be questions asked about him with the, the talent that yeah, he's got Yeah, look, you, you never want to wish anybody to be under pressure. I mean, I've been a manager for a long time myself, but you, you generally sense it, you know, when results aren't quite going your way and the way you want them to go. Um, you start to worry, though, more on, I think, even what Ed said last week, that do we rely so much on Aaron Moy and the team and if you look at last week's game, the evidence is that well, at the moment they do. So it would be interesting how good an effect he has tomorrow, um, oh, sorry, tonight. And if and if everything goes well, then from there, I still think Melbourne City have still got something that can still work. And, and realistically, I think stability is going to be really important. And I know with the Man City group that, you know, that, that look after this whole uh, organisation worldwide, They'll, they'll be patient to a point, but then obviously they're not going to be scared to make some decisions if they have to change direction. Do you know who's going to win? I'm going to take Brisbane. Brisbane at home, and then they'll go back top. And, um, you know, they're off to another flying start, really. OK, let's move to Saturday and Western Sydney and Wellington Phoenix. Um, Western Sydney, very impressive last week, obviously. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they're starting to build a bit of momentum. They, look, they were great. They were great. And, and they thoroughly deserved um, the victory. I thought the performance was organised. It was well drilled. They created lots of chances. They had great movement. You know, it was hard to pick. You know, I know the man of the match, Bridgie, was given it and he couldn't believe he got it, even though he did play well. But he, there were so many better players out there. But, you know, he said, I'll take the accolade on behalf of the team. But I, I wouldn't too discount uh, Wellington because they were very impressive as well. Um, you know, especially with their, their win last week, you know, um, a 14 victory over Adelaide. And I know, obviously, Adelaide are a little bit of the whipping boys as it stands currently. But at the same token, you know, Wellington are really well poised on that 10 points where there's a glut of teams on 10 points. Um, and I think it'll be a tight game. I think Wanderers now, after that performance, that should give them great confidence to now kick on and, and move up the ladder again and then push, really, Brisbane and Melbourne victory. Yeah, look, um, another big game. I mean, um, from last week's results, Sydney FC will be really disappointed, uh, obviously getting beat on their own patch after a really good start to the season, losing to Melbourne victory. And, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's a tough away uh, trip to Perth. Um, with regards to Perth, I mean, they got beat really, really late and they were very, very resolute the whole of the game. It was only in the last 10 minutes where it just fell away and they, they let go of what would have been a valuable point. Um I think looking more so, from my point of view, from Sydney FC, they lose um, Jacques Fate. Um, obviously, he's got some personal issues, and obviously he's going back to France. So I'm hoping, obviously, that's not connected with obviously what's happened over in recent days mm. over in Paris. But you, you generally put one and one normally equals two, so it might be something related to some family member there. So we wish him good luck on that trip. But I think without him. I think it leaves a really big gap. So Sydney's going to have to bounce back. Perth looked a lot more resilient last week uh, at Brisbane, and I think this might end up in a draw. Yeah, they probably deserve a result, Perth. They weren't that bad in the FFA Cup final, and as you said, they were unlucky last week against Brisbane. So um, I'd like to see Perth stay in touch with the uh, the top of the ladder and uh, and not drop off, because if they do lose this weekend, then it's a real challenge for them to, to, to make a, a, a final. You're, you're right there, Rob. It, it is. There's starting to be a little bit of a gap, you know, with Adelaide on two points and Perth on three. Central Coast obviously having got beat still on five, but... 
it's you know it's starting to come the real gaps. So Perth really do need a result of some sort. And so do Adelaide too in that other game against Newcastle. If they uh, lose, then it's all but but uh, over and out for them. And the Newcastle Jets, uh, after that great start to the season, they won't want to lose because uh, they'll they'll start to to wonder how such a great start has has unravelled. Well, it did even last week, you know, when they were winning in the derby. You know, it was, it was quite a good game and, you know, um, Central Coast were down to 10 men, but Newcastle Jets um, conceded in the 91st minute, you know, when their goalkeeper went up and it was a bit of a scramble and, you know, they got, a, you know, they dropped valuable two points, which, you know, if you stick another two points onto Newcastle's total, they would be sitting currently in second place mm-hmm. or, or just now in third, obviously, with victory's results last night. So, look, it's an important game. I think Newcastle need to continue that, but more importantly, I think Adelaide have really got to come to the party. I've got an actual stat that I think is interesting. You know, you talk about passing and possession. Um, Melbourne City, Sydney FC, Western Wanderers and Brisbane lie fifth, fourth, third and second. The team that's completed the most passes is Adelaide. And you think, well, you're bottom of the league, you've got two points, but you're completing all these passes. And it's an interesting stat but generally, you know, the possession-based teams creating more chances, but it just they're just not obviously converting that, and that's why, they're, you know, they're stuck at the bottom. Huge game for Adelaide on Sunday. Uh, Dean, as usual, fantastic uh, analysis of what's going to happen in the A-League this weekend. It's Friday afternoon, and we've pulled you out of a coaches' meeting, so obviously no Friday night evening drinks at Hume City tonight. No, no, planning again, obviously, for another season. So, you know, uh, one door closes and another one opens. So, yeah, we've had a planning meeting and hopefully we'll have a positive <laughs> result by the teams on the weekend. Very good, Dino. And maybe go one or two better in the FFA Cup next season, mate. Thanks, Dean. That, that, that would be nice. Thanks, guys. Exactly. Great to talk to you again. And next up, we touched on this briefly last week. We're going to go a little deeper into that wonderful night 10 years ago with Fox Sports' Adam Peacock on the line to talk about his new book, That Night, A Decade on the Story of Australian Football's Greatest Night. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back to Box to Box on NTS News Talk Sport Digital Radio and a very warm welcome for the first time on Box to Box to a man who's fast becoming the modern day Les Murray. He's the face of Fox Sports Football and unless you've been hiding under the proverbial rock, you'll know he's just written a tremendous new book which is a must read for anyone interested in Australian football. That book is called That Night, A Decade on the Story of Australian Football's Greatest Night. Adam Peacock, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries, boys. I can promise one day in the future... I'll never be on an ethics committee. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, mate. I th- oh, look, I thought somebody had to coin the, the new nickname for you because, uh, you know, Les is gone and you've taken the baton. Les is still alive. Well, he's gone from the main it. stage. You know, he's, a, he's an elder statesman. Oh, he a... still tweets, Rob. He still tweets. He gets his <laughs> little... Uh, he does gets his vlogs. He does. He does. His vlogs, they're good. So, <laughs> no, he's, there's the one and only Les, mate. There's only one of him. Adam, you've written a book and... Uh, I've had a read of it. It's, uh, it, it, it is great. But I just wanted to ask the first question. The obvious one was, um, where did the idea come from? Um, how long have you been thinking about it? And uh, was it a lot of fun to do? Yeah, it was a lot of fun to do. My wife might not agree from the, the last two weeks that I was actually writing the thing and the uh, deadline was fast approaching and I basically disappeared off the face of the earth down to my little little um, den downstairs to hide away and, and write away and double-check and triple-check all the mistakes that were in it, and there were plenty of them in the first draft. So um, the, the idea came because it's a story well worth telling overall. And as we saw 
um, not just in a, in a book, in a, in a literature sense, but also a cinematography one with that wonderful doco that Ben Kerman and, um, and Rich Bayless did. It's, it's just such a good story. It has so many angles to it. And, um, yeah, I just decided to, to hook in and um, get involved. And, and what I found was, was well worth it. It was such a rewarding experience talking to all these guys about their experiences. And, mate, what about the perspective from the Uruguay camp? I remember that night doing some colour pieces for the radio network back then. We had uh, Frank Farina on our colour commentary, and I was walking through the crowd looking for some good stories, and I found a couple of brothers that uh, one had been born in Australia of Uruguayan heritage and was wearing a Uruguayan shirt, and the brother that was born in Uruguay was wearing a Socceroos shirt. There were were just some (laughs) great stories throughout the whole night. The Uruguayan perspective in the book. Yeah, it... I didn't go too heavy because I, I could have, but I thought, no, the more I, I delved into the stories of our guys, um, and I, what I do basically through the book is go through the backstories of every single guy that played some part of the two ties, both here in uh, Sydney and also Montevideo. So by the time I did that, I was still I was on target for a, a huge story anyway, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, I could go down the Uruguayan path, but they... They kind of like I, I took myself back to 2005, and really I wasn't. We weren't that interested in what I think it was all about no. us, given the 32 years. So I kind of kept it that way. I can see why um, the guys on the doco went to Akoba because he gave that that nice little edge. But everything that he said, and I stumbled across a lot of Uruguayan newspapers that I got translated and and went through those and with with the entire backstory. And I, I, I talked to um talk to some local local people with Uruguayan extraction um about what the team means to them. But as far as their side of things, it, it's not that good a story because that was kind of just a, a World Cup miss for them and then they obviously qualified for the next one and did very well and a whole generation of players came in. So yeah, that, that's why I kind of avoided the Uruguayan angle the way I did. It's, it's still in there, but it's it's certainly not um, to the extent of the Australian angle. Adam, Mark Van Aken here. Uh, we obviously know it's a fabulous story, uh, the qualification. It's a great book uh, as we get to it. But give us the elevator pitch, mate. What, what are the two or three real... Stand- I mean, we obviously know the main story. We've probably all watched the doco uh, on Monday night on Fox Sports. But, you know, what were some of the real interesting stories that came out of this book? The chase of hitting, to start with. So they had um, three cracks at him. They got him on the, the third occasion, and the, the third occasion that they got him was quite funny. Graham Arnold was taken with John Boltby, who was the high performance manager of the SFA, very experienced sporting administrator, came into the RAS, and he's part of this gang, if you like, of, of outsiders coming into football to run the sport because that's what Frank Lowy wanted at the time, uh, including John O'Neill. But um, John Boltby and also Graham Arnold got on a plane to Europe, and John Boltby actually didn't tell Graham Arnold who the, it was like this. Like, like a mystery box tour, if you want to use a master chef analogy, like Arnold would be sitting there waiting, and 20 minutes before he'd find out who he's meeting. I couldn't believe John <laughs> Boltby kept a secret. It's, it's... Yeah, well, he did. He did it well. Um, so there was that, and they went over and saw a big advocate. There was a bit of conjecture. I didn't put it in the book because it's like memories, obviously, of 10 years ago. But they went and saw Martin O'Neill at some point, and they also, oh, yeah. Kevin, Kevin Keegan's name got thrown up as well. Um, but the the trump card, and this was the third time they'd gone to Gus Hiddink. So they'd already had two cracks. They obviously wanted him, but they needed that fallback option. And Dick Advocate was the fallback option. But um, And then after they met with Advocate, they stayed in London overnight, and they got up the next morning, and, and uh, unbeknownst to Arnie, he had a ticket to Eindhoven. He goes, no way. We're not going to see Gus Hiddink. There's no way in the world you've got Gus Hiddink. An hour and a half later, he's sitting in front of him talking about his, play- his new players because um, Ben Hiddink uh, realised these guys are serious. He was keen to, he just wanted to check a few things about the players, and he was right to go. 
And Adam, you tell a really good story about how Gus uh, allowed the players to carry on in their own style for a little while, but then at one point he just put his foot down when they were strolling in like Brown's cows. Tell us a little bit about that story. This, this guy is the master man manager, so he, he knows how to manipulate uh, a player's mind for his benefit. And uh, talking to a few people, I, I think that, that that's the one area where Dutch managers, they're very, very good technically and tactically, but that's the one area some Dutch managers fall down because they don't have those personable, um, person-to-person skills to be able to negotiate certain characters. Mm-hmm. And Gusinik was not one of them. He, he, he knew exactly what he wanted. And yeah, they, uh, they rocked up for lunch and they were dressed in whatever, flip-flops, as he calls them, shorts, um, Bermuda shorts and hats backwards. And he was saying, what is this, this is a beach party? Um, <laughs> after two days, he just went, right, this stops. He just wanted to observe everyone. He wanted to see what cliques were there. And he, to his astonishment a little bit, he, he he didn't see any clicks, but he just saw a very relaxed, too relaxed atmosphere, and he wanted a bit of decorum in the joint, so he, uh, he put his foot down in no uncertain terms. And that was the discipline. We're listening to Adam Peacock talking about his book that night, a decade on the story of Australian football's greatest night on News Talk Sport NTS. And, of course, when he finally started to get the players on board and, and got them into line, there were some of those senior players like John Aloisi, for example's sake. These were guys who were not surprised when he did put his foot down to say, yep, this is what, he, what we got him for. Yeah, uh, Tony Vimmo. A lot of these players, by the time they got to this stage, they'd, they'd been through it all in Europe and they'd worked with um, five, six, whatever, different managers. So they'd seen all kinds of um, types of characters, but they'd never had a guy with a CV like this. So, uh, yeah, Tony Vidmar was, was one that was totally across it because he, know, he knows what the Dutch coaches are like and what Hitting wanted off the park with that um, decorum in the in the lunchroom. And the, the, um, the buffet, he... Uh, He'd experienced it before with other Dutch coaches, so he knew a storm was coming when he saw him just sitting over there in the corner, just watching everyone, observing everyone, uh, and telling him my son himself, oh no, something's oh, no, something not right, something's coming, something's coming, he knew it was coming. So yeah, a few of them were across it, but I think the big thing with the players, their relationship with him early, before the Uruguay matches, this is when the early camps were on uh, in 2005 when he took over, was that he just gave them nothing. He, he was like that headmaster that you want to please um, but he, he, he gave nothing in return, he, he kept on wanting to give something for him to like it was this weird kind of relationship but it changed a bit when I got the Uruguay Adam, um, you mentioned Tony Vidmo I mean, um, as, as one of the player stories, I mean, for me my memories of, of Tony um, the strikeout is the four years earlier and him walking off the, the pitch in Uruguay uh, in tears, and then obviously his redemption. I mean, that that in itself is a, is an amazing journey for um, mm. for a player that really um, straddled two generations of Socceroos, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ninety three, ninety seven, uh, two thousand and one. It all went to pot for him. So he, he was he was dead keen. I think he got to a point in in um, about two thousand and four where he thought, okay, I've got to I've got to be smart here about where I go club wise. So he changed clubs. He went back to Holland for the um, the '05 season and um, to get a bit more regular playing time. He tells his unreal story of when he was actually just back, I think it was Brader he went back to, and he was just back in Holland, and his wife's um, father was uh, a member of his tennis club in Eindhoven. And lo and behold, one day, and this is just after Kidding has got back from Australia after being announced as Socceroos boss, one late July day, he's good hitting, having hit a tennis over in the corner. The Vimar didn't have the crew to go up to him and say, Oh, hi, Tony Vimar, how are you? Blah, 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 blah. He, he was too 
he's too savvy for that because he knew that a guy like Hitting might hold it against him in the, in the long run because he's um, sucking his, uh, you know what, so um, <laughs> sucking up to him. So, yeah, um, Vidmar was, was one of these guys that had been through it all and, uh, yeah, he just wanted to give himself one last crack and it, it was so worth it because he was immense, not just in the match, but obviously the penalty shootout as well. Yeah, he absolutely was. And we fast forward to that very penalty shootout. And uh, we know all the great stories about John Aloisi. And I do want you to share with us uh, John's prediction of uh, his goal. But uh, but Harry Kuehl stepping up early. Mark Viduka missing. I mean, Mark Viduka, of all people, missing in that vital penalty shootout. Did exactly the same thing the day before. Wow. Like, inch the same. Like, missed it bottom left, missed everything. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And the guys, like Brian Arnold said, that they, they had no qualms about putting him in the penalty shootout because surely he can do it again. Mm. Wow. <laughs> he replicated it to the nth degree. It was uh, extraordinary. Yeah, John Lewis, he was, the, he was the, obviously the hero and the guy that's on the front of the book. Um, and his life changed a bit after it. But um, he said four years earlier, after not playing much of a part in the failed 2001 campaign, he said to his family after that game in Uruguay, he rang them and said, look, I'm, gonna, I'm determined to score the goal to take us to the World Cup. And so for four years, and even like in the, the match in London against Jamaica, he went up to Mark Paducah and said, yeah, I'm going to score the goal that takes us to the World Cup Amazing. and get to these playoffs. And yeah, it, it rang true. It he, was, he was that confident. Adam, before we go, um, I want to just change tack for a very, very short moment. Um, obviously, Optus uh, securing the uh, Premier League rights. Um, just yep. tell us about the mood amongst you guys at Fox and um, how that's uh, potentially, you know, I, I don't know what you can tell us about it, but um, yeah, yeah, how, how are you feeling about it all? Yeah, I'm annoyed. I mean, I'm <laughs> on it, quite honestly, and I'm not just saying this, I'm more annoyed because I'm a fan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's obviously the slight chance that Newcastle United won't be in the Premier League next season, so I might not have to worry about it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm annoyed that Optus haven't said anything. I'd, I'd love to find out what exactly their plans are because um, I've just got home and I'm not pumping up Foxtel's uh, service here, but I'm, I'm, I just got home and the, the Victory Central Coast match is on, for instance. I've missed the first half hour. I can press a button on my IQ3 and go back and watch the match via the internet. Now, that picture via the internet, compared to what's going on live, it's, uh, well, different, mm. put it that way. So if Optus's plan is to stream matches via the internet, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to go down against the, uh, the, the Premier League brethren of Australia. Um, it's, it's not that great. So hopefully Optus can find the, the suitable broadcasting platform to appease what is a really loyal um, customer base, if you want to call us that, uh, viewership. Yeah, hope, hopefully that can be done. As for the move at Fox Sports, we've got a bid. It's so unfortunate. And I know people look at it and go, well, hang on a minute, I pay for Fox Sports. Um, how can you get outbid? Well, it's like any business. There's only, there's only so much you can throw at it. And um, Optus threw $63 million per year at Australian. Um, and I think we paid last time, and we upped our bid substantially this time. I don't know exactly how much we paid, but last time we paid in the region $15 million per annum for it. So, yeah, it's, it's gone through the roof. Um, and it's really unfortunate, and we're, we're, we're really disappointed about it, obviously, and especially people in the football department. There'd be nothing more than we'd love to hang on to the Premier League, but um, business is business sometimes, and, and hopefully Optus can do it justice. Yeah, there's a few months to go. Hopefully some landing will occur where there's some negotiation going on, because those of us who are out there that are watchers, observers, and just enjoy the whole um, 
palette of, of football that you cover with uh, yourself and the various other experts, whether it's Bozza, Cozzi and all the other great names that you've got on. It's just such an enjoyable watch to, to watch the, the A-League matches roll on into the Premier League, watch the, the, the colour pieces you do in the Fox Sports News. And we actually feel now like we're, we're on equal footing to, to our European counterparts. And, and, and this future, this uncertain future, it just seems like we're, uh, we're going into a, a world where we might be rewinding. But, mate, um, we, we'll get you back on to talk a, a little bit more about that because, uh, mate, uh, you're a great communicator. People like to hear what you've got to say. You've written a great book and, uh, and you've got a lot of, uh, of important comment to make, mate. The book is called That Night, A Decade On, The Story of Australian Football's Greatest Night. It's a great read and it needed to be written. It's been written by a great bloke in Adam Peacock. Thanks for joining us tonight, mate. No worries, guys. I wouldn't say that I'm a great communicator because sometimes <laughs> I get home and I forget to tell my wife the stuff that's going on and she looks at the computers and all that. But yeah, appreciate the kind words. Thanks, guys. You're Thanks, welcome, AP. Mate. More after the break. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley on NTS News Talks Book. This is Box to Box. And now it's the Green and Gold Army's own Ben Summerford with the latest on the Socceroos. Good to have you back, Ben. Yeah, no problem, mate. How are you? Yeah, mate, really well. And uh, I guess uh, we start with the uh, the Socceroos. Uh, since we last talked, the uh, the week's been bookended by a couple of, uh, of solid wins. Uh, the Bangladesh result uh, probably could have been uh, a far higher scoring affair than it, than it ended up being. The Kyrgyzstan uh, won the same, as, as Ange famously said. Yeah, that's right. Both games, Australia were, were dominant. Um, could easily have been seven or eight in both games. But uh, in the long term, it's, it's not too big a deal. Um yeah, just ticking along nicely. Uh, they'll, they'll get through this stage with their problems, and um, you know, got some new players in the squad, which is good. So you know, all going well. And we got lucky with the Jordan Kyrgyzstan result as well, leaving us on top of the group. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, Kyrgyzstan, you know, we had we had our own challenges um, over there in Kyrgyzstan when we played them. So clearly, they're a, they're a half decent side. Um, I think we were always going to go through as one of the top two sides. Um, I think it's the top four uh, runners up in groups go through. So I think we're always going to go through, but this certainly uh, makes it pretty uh, pretty likely we'll finish top now. Ben, just um, can I ask you to reflect on some of the new players that got an opportunity? Um, why don't we start with James Meredith in the in the first game against Kyrgyzstan? He was impressive. Yeah, hugely impressive. Um, you know, his ability to to not only defend but get forward um, something we've probably been lacking at left back. And there's clearly a, you know a contest up for that spot and uh, I think he he showed a lot uh, we need to temper our enthusiasm because it's only Kyrgyzstan and, and Bangladesh but um, you know you've got to start somewhere and that was that was positive and uh, the, on the flip side some of the, the veterans like uh, Timmy Cale but uh, Aaron Moy how good was he? Yeah he's going very well um, and he's probably full of confidence right now and, and riding that wave um, you know I think he set up four goals mm. over the, the two games and there was a couple there where, you know, inadvertent, um, you know, I think it was an own goal, which came from his corner, and um, another free kick where Bailey right headed it to Jednak. So, you know, he's been right in the thick of it and, and playing well. He's got the intricate passes, and, you know, he's, like I said, full of confidence. Um, again, it is only Bangladesh and Kyrgyzstan, but, 
certainly become a central figure, and that's that's pretty exciting for him. Definitely. Well, you've got to get the results, as we've talked about uh, in the past, that uh, it might have been a you know, two or three-inch uh, uh, layer of grass on that pitch in Bangladesh, but uh, but some of the one-touch football that they played and the aggressive way that the Bangladeshi players started off that game, they seemed like they were a bunch of school kids uh, coming out against uh, the Australian team, wanting to ruffle, ruffle their feathers and, and get in their face and just show them how... how, uh, um, how um, committed they were but in the end all of that uh, firepower uh, ended up for naught and uh, the, the the good thing about the Australian team was that Postacoglu managed to uh, to get them to to understand the nature of having to to, to settle into the match and then uh, and then create opportunities as they did mm, it was it was a bit of a, a bit of a dangerous game in the in the fact that the preparation was a bit disjointed um, having to stay in Singapore and then fly there I think the day before the game so a bit tricky um, but they, they managed to navigate that first half hour year ago always and helps. And you've got to concede the fact that, that that game was played off the backdrop of the uh, of the, the Paris terrorist attacks and and they were going mm. to a dangerous country where the Australian cricket team had, uh, had just uh, had pulled out of a tour and uh, admittedly a vastly different scenario than a cricket match played over four or five days uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a, an oval where players are closer to the boundary to a, a situation like this where it was fly in, fly out. But they still would have been worried about the whole situation. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Certainly when you go out in the field, you... You put 110% in, but it's the preparation which gets affected. It's those, you know, the night before a game, you might not sleep as well. And, you know, just the the travel, the logistics about getting around are a bit affected. And that, that puts you off a little bit. So to get through was um, was really positive. Ben, you're a Perth boy. Um, I saw a great tweet from Trent Sainsbury uh, during the week um, from under-13's West Aussie NTC team together yep. to the Socceroos. Um, he calls his mate Rizballs, but uh, Josh Risson, tell us a little bit about that. And I think that's a great story, isn't it? Can, can you just give us a bit of background because I know you know a lot about it. Yeah. I don't know where the nickname Rizballs comes from, <laughs> but uh, you know, Risson's one of the, uh, I suppose, a bunch of young Perth guys who've come through the system, and uh, you know, going on to bigger and better things now. And, and Trent's the same. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about Risson. I've always felt he's a he's a future soccerer. Now he actually is a fully fledged soccerer and, and looks to be someone who could certainly uh, fill a void at right back and, and do a job and, and probably more. So it's exciting for him. Um, uh, yeah, Trent Sainsbury, he's a funny bloke. He's, he's all cracking all sorts of jokes on Twitter these days. So, yeah, if you, if you haven't, haven't got a follow of him, um, have a look. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what about, um, were you surprised that uh, Risden was able to make his way into the team? Uh, not really. No, I felt he, he warranted it. Um, we haven't really... Nailed down the right, right back spot. Frenish is obviously out injured. Uh, Elrich has been filling in a bit there, and McGowan, um, you know, he's a he's handy, but he's probably not the solution. So that spot's wide open, I reckon. And um, Brisbane's played very well for probably two, three seasons at Glory. Um, started the season well, and I assume he impressed in the in the camp and, and did enough to to get the Gurney. So you know, I think he's, he's certainly one to watch. Um, I expect him to get a, a lot more caps. Okay, um, what about some of the European-based players? Um, uh, Massimo Luongo, um, was he a little bit off pace? Do we, do we, have, a, we have a problem with that? Yeah, maybe. Um, I think it's probably got something to do with his club situation where he's, he's not getting as many games as he'd like. Uh, I think the, the way QPR are playing isn't really his style and as a result he's, he's dropped out of favour there um, in saying that apparently he's been linked to Arsenal so he's doing something right. Um, but uh, yeah, 
I guess when it comes down to, to form and, and dropping out of the club side, you only need to look ahead and realise that our next qualifier isn't until March. So hopefully by then he's, he's back in form and, and that you know relaxes that, that concern. But um, yeah, it, it is a, a bit of a worry, but hopefully he can you know find some, find some form soon. And to wrap it up, Ben, an observation on the Ollie Ruse. Should we start to be uh, getting a little worried about uh, whether we're going to Brazil? Is it really a Vidmar the right coach to, to be taking these young blokes through? I mean, these are young guys who, who are, a lot of them are, are playing in, 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 in strong leagues. They're playing with international standard coaches. Uh, are we right to question whether Aurelio is the man for the job? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, his record over the last couple of years hasn't been great. Um, whether a change right now would do any good, I'm not so sure. But, um, yeah, um, pressure's on. He's certainly got a good bunch of players. Yeah, like you said, there's guys like Adam Taggart who, you know, well-credentialed players. Um, so... Uh, the jury's out at the moment and pressure's on, I guess. I guess um, the one thing in his favour was that the same thing was said about Ange Postacoglu and look what happened there. Well, that's it. You know, sometimes when situations get um, a bit tense, it brings out the best in people, so hopefully that works in his favour. Well, hopefully that will be the case, Ben. Mate, great to have you on again as always. We'll have you on again the show in the very near future. Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse, home of real brands and real savings. Absolutely fantastic! Welcome back to Box to Box on digital radio and streaming on the NTS app. You can also search for NTS on the TuneIn Radio app as well. This hour, we talk the legacy of Frank Lowy, a giant of Australian business, but from a football observer's point of view, the man who saved and reconstructed the game in Australia. We'll talk to John Stensholt soon a little about the legacy off the pitch, but first up, Sebastian Hassett to reflect on how the game itself has changed on the park. Thanks for joining us, Seb. An absolute pleasure, gentlemen. And, mate, look, let's rewind to prior to the A-League, the dying days of the NSL. Talk to us a little about how it all happened, why the NSL was wound up, the period of hiatus before the A-League started and, uh, and, and how it all began. Well, I mean, the, the, the NSL, as much loved as it was by many people, myself and uh, Michael Edgeley included. Absolutely. Uh, look, it, 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 for better or worse, had reached its natural conclusion. Uh, professional sport in Australia was changing, football was changing, and it had served its purpose, I think, uh, up until that point. But it was no longer sustainable. It was genuinely a sport with... I think, mainstream passion that was just waiting to be unearthed. But unfortunately, the league only had a very, very minority uh, interest across Australia. And it was only natural, really, that it, it came to an end, as, as, as much loved as, as it was by those of us who, who were there at the time. Uh, and you might say that that sort of had... There was, there was a lovely lovely crosshairs when Frank, Frank Lowy came, came along and really his... His appointment as chairman in 2003 was the catalyst for all that came after it. And that takes us probably through right until you know this week as he steps down as chairman. That's certainly how I reflect upon the past 12 years. But the game was in such dire straits. And, and um, he came along and he did so with a, quite a few caveats. And when he was asked to lead the sport as chairman by the prime minister at the time, John Howard, he said, I'll do it on one condition. You give me carte blanche. I get to choose who I want on the board. I get to run this game how I want. You can't interfere. 
but you have to let me do it. If, if you do that, I'll give it everything I've got. And I think at the time, I don't necessarily know that Lowy was that convinced that he wanted to do it. He needed to be talked into it, and he needed he needed to do it on his terms. You know, those terms have proven to be quite controversial over the years, and, and you might argue it, it's those very terms that have led to his son being appointed as chairman. But the progress the game has made in that time over the past 12 years is, is quite phenomenal. I mean... Uh, when you think about the sport in 2003, the Phoenix rising from the ashes in 2005 uh, with the growth of the A-League and, and the subsequent success of the Socceroos, it has been an enormous contribution. Seb, um, I remember at the time very, very well. It's, it's not spoken about often, but one of the very first um, items on Lowy's agenda was to decouple the old power base of of uh, football stakeholders and there was new constitutions uh, sweeping across all of the state bodies. Um, I remember that um, in Victoria, for example, the Premier League clubs really did run the show and in New South Wales, the New South Wales Premier Premier League clubs coveted all of the votes that uh, were able to elect commissioners who who then obviously made their way into the old Soccer Australia board. So Lowy was able to really decouple that and I probably don't think there was any other individual who could have done that. Obviously John O'Neill helped him a lot but how do you rate that achievement and then him being able to control um, the stakeholders and in particular the the elected stakeholders to to give him that carte blanche. Do you rate that as one of his big achievements? Oh, Absolutely. The deconstruction of the power base which had held the game back for so long and served self-interest above the interest of the game, it's quite a remarkable achievement. And for those who are critical of Lowy, and and trust me, there's a list as long as your arm, I think some of them ought to take stock and realise how how self-interested those parties were. They were all after their own patch. They were all looking after what, what they could control, whether it was their club or their federation or or what have you. But the fact that he was able to remove that and, and cut through it all and, and really just take a, a massive uh, wrecking ball to it and build it up almost from scratch um, was, was, a, was a huge achievement. I mean, it had to be done. And we would have talked about this, I reckon, since you know, the late 80s and mid-90s. It was always a topic of discussion, but we probably never thought it could happen, certainly not for not as quick as it did. We all just hoped it would happen, and that was all it was. It was a hope. But through this transition, the, the fact that the game hit such a rock bottom uh, actually enabled, actually sort of shone a bit of a torch on how bad the governance of the game was and how it needed to be reconfigured. And th- that that has been sustained uh, through this period, and, and the, the fact that the A-League is still under the auspices, for example, of the FFA, remains a bit controversial for some people. But... I think Lowy had a really good grasp of what needed to be done. And Seb, with that decoupling came the uh, the, the uh, disillusionment of, of a lot of the uh, the NSL supporters, the the people that created the foundations of the game in this Australia across so much of the cultural diaspora of this country. Uh, some of them came on to the new league, others didn't and, and have never come back. Uh, uh, is there a way to, to retrieve some of those... Uh, passionate football people who who just couldn't get on board and now they're still sitting on the sidelines unable to engage? It's a million dollar question, isn't it? And it's been plaguing the game since, I think, uh, since it was the day that John O'Neill talked about old soccer and new football. That line in the sand, it was so much more than a line in the sand, really, because it cut so deep and it cut to the actual heart of the game. And it, 
it disenfranchised everybody who'd made a contribution up until 2005. Everyone thought, everyone who'd, who'd given something to the game in whatever capacity suddenly thought that their what they'd given was suddenly rendered meaningless and irrelevant, mm. and they felt so disenfranchised and unloved. But by the same token, it opened up the game to entirely new communities. It opened it up to the, the mainstream of Australia. We're still fighting the battle to that day, and I think it's the best example of just how deep those divisions are and how much healing there is still to do. It probably is in the form of the FFA Cup mm. and how, yeah. what, what a bridge that has proven to be back to the old ethnic clubs and just how how many people there are still to be engaged. I mean, we talk about the progress the game has made under Frank Laurie these past 12 years. Well, it has been remarkable, but there's so much more to do, and you're absolutely right. There is, I mean, there's still a, a big chunk of the uh, really important football constituency in this country who, you know, I think their passion for the game is there, uh, whether their passion for the A-League is there is another question. Yeah, Seb, let's talk about on the field of the A-League, uh, the quality of the games. Obviously, um, uh, that's that's one of the debates, isn't it, between is it better now than what it was in the old NSL? I tend to think, um, you know, if the, you know those Melbourne Knights and South Melbourne and Marconi Championship teams, how they would go in the A-League today, what do you think? Great question. Uh, and I think that some of them... <laughs> Some of them really would go pretty well. I think the probably the Melbourne Knights team of '94-5 would <laughs> look. They they would go exceptionally well. I think even some of the South Melbourne teams around the turn of the century, uh, Adelaide City, the late '80s. Yeah. I, I think I think they'd all really go pretty well. Um, but I mean, we are isolating some pretty special teams who did develop freak generations of talent. I mean, probably a better way to look at it in, in, in one sense would be, well, how would the bottom teams of those leagues go against the bottom teams of the A-League today? I, I, I think I think the A-League team, whoever that might be, would win pretty comfortably. Um, that said, I mean, it's not to diminish the quality of some of those NSL teams, and particularly what has been lost. I felt there were probably more individually gifted players in the NSL. Perhaps they didn't have... Uh, they weren't as good tactically or that maybe maybe the teams weren't as uh, physically adept as they are today. But there was a real emphasis on some real uh, elite individual talent. And I think that was what that actually produced was, for example, the, the generation of the 2001 and 2005 Socceroos, who I, I regard as probably the two best teams of all time by some margin. And they all came out of the NSL and they were all elite individual talents. So that you can't disregard the quality that, it, that did exist at that time. We're talking to, to Sydney Morning Herald football writer Sebastian Hassett. You're listening to Box to Box on News Talk Sport. Seb, let's just segue into Frank Lowy's uh, national team coaches. He obviously inherited Frank Farina. Uh, we had Hinnick, Arnold, Verbeek, uh, Holger Osik, and uh, now local man and favourite Ange Postacoglu. Um, did Frank make any errors in any of those appointments, in your opinion? Um, yes, uh, yes, he did. I, I think that probably the biggest error was, was Holger Osik. Uh, look, I'm no fan of Pim Verbeek. Uh, I thought the, the style that Australia played under him was, was turgid. And we had a terrible World Cup in 2010. But our qualifying campaign was outstanding. Uh, and that probably has been forgotten. He's statistically the best performing coach, Pimperbeek. I'll just throw it's, that in. It's, you know, it's, it's quite. It is something to note. And I, I get a clear I, interest here, Edge. 
uh, you're telling secrets here. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he really did have... Uh, look, he, he certainly didn't win many admirers with the way Australia played, but by golly, Australia was hard to beat. And that was something you couldn't say about Australian teams for, for many a year, and we, that led to so many heartbreaks uh, over and again. This was the flip mm. side of that. We were a, 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 a tough professional team, and we got the job done. Unfortunately, it didn't quite uh, work out in South Africa. But that's what made I it all the more disappointing, wasn't it? Yeah, that we, that we and, were hard to beat. We should have gone in there and had a go. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's what it, uh, led a lot of people down, uh, particularly Craig Foster. Mm. Um, I think with, with Holger, it was um, possibly the infatuation with overseas coaches uh, possibly had reached its zenith at that point. And I'm, I'm, look, I just remember speaking to some German friends of mine who are journalists over there, and, and they were like, uh, yeah, Ozick isn't really part of the new generation of, of coaches. He's not a Jurgen Klopp. He, he's part of the old guard of German coaches who we've evolved past. And I remember hearing that probably a, a week or two after Ozick was appointed, and I, I thought, yeah, Potentially, we, 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 we've made a bit of a blunder, and I think the fact that he completely failed, as he's, he, he made a big promise uh, to the Australian public that he was going to bring through the next generation of Socceroos. And I, I was in a private meeting with him where he wrote the current first team on a whiteboard, and then he wrote down the Socceroos team five years from now and how he was planning to bring all those players through. And he said, the, it's going to be a hard thing to do, but I'm going to do it. I promise you I'm going to bring through all these young players uh, and they'll be the, the key part of the qualifying campaign for the 2014 World Cup. I think almost none of those players were given the opportunity and he continued to rely on the old players and the results I think we limped over the, over the line. We got there, yes, and, and that should never be understated, but the fact is we limped over the line and, and it, the, probably the best decision that, that Lowy made uh, in terms of a coaching appointment, was to actually make a very ballsy decision to sack him and to bring in Andrew Postacoglu, who, as we know, has taken the team, has regenerated it and brought new strength to the team. Yeah, well, thank God that uh, Hossick's last couple of games were heavy losses, which pretty much allowed Lowy to do exactly what he did and bring uh, uh, Andrew back in. Seb, it's been fantastic, mate. It's always great to talk to you. Your insights are magnificent. You touched on Stephen Lowy. We're going to pick up on that conversation a little later on. Uh, but uh, perhaps Frank could become the roving ambassador uh, to Australian football. And uh, his, uh, his brief in the future could be to, to bring back the disparate groups of, uh, of the, uh, the, the football culture, the, uh, the, the, the Italians and the Greeks and the... Croatians and every other his own Jewish uh, roots maybe well, that's a well, job for him interesting that you've touched on that just before I go I'll tell you that he is definitely getting back involved with Sydney City mm-hmm. who have found their way back up into the New South Wales uh, Premier League uh, for next season and uh, let me tell you Frank is most definitely more than an interested party he might be eyeing them off into the A-League mate I, no doubt yeah. <laughs> ok so look thanks Seb after the break we're going to talk more about the Lowy legacy with the Australian Financial Review's John Stensholt Box to Box can you believe it for Chemist Warehouse home of real brands and real savings and this could be the most crucial goal of all Welcome back. And if Sebastian Hassett is the expert on the pitch, then John Stensholt is the oracle off it. And he's here to talk just where Frank Lowy leaves Australian football off the park. Thanks for joining us again, John. No worries at all, guys. Happy to be on. John, um, let's uh, kick off with um, 
probably one of the, the, the bigger achievements of, of Chairman Frank's time uh, leading the FFA was actually getting us uh, from Oceania into Asia. Can you give us a bit of a background on how big an achievement that was? And um, is that the commercial gold nugget that he's left uh, as a legacy for the sport? I think it's uh, I think it's one of them. I think it's one that's probably still to be played out. You know, when we talk about that as Australian business, you know, the prospect of uh, uh, of Asia, you know, this being the Asian century and that sort of thing. I think football's still a little way to go, but we, you know, we've we've started the process. You know, the Wanderers winning the Champions League, uh, you know, other bits and pieces. Us obviously hosting the Asian Cup was very successful from a financial point of view. Uh, but there is some way to go. Look, yeah, it is a really interesting story how it all unfolded as well. I mean, it was one of his sort of you know, three pillars when he started off to, you know, get a, get a new national league, get into Asia and get Australia into the World Cup as well. So there was, uh, you know, yeah, that was one of the big sort of uh, strategies. We had to leave Oceania, I think, uh, you know, I think he's right in saying that, you know, get out of that sort of minnow you know, confederation into into the big into the big pond, I, I think. Uh, it, there were some really sort of fraught negotiations around it. You know, we, we've been trying to get into Asia for a long, long time, getting voted down uh, all sorts of other times as well. Well, there was that there. Uh, famous uh, David Hill vote. I think we got one vote. Was that right? That's right. I think it was us, wasn't it? So, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. So, look, it took a lot of negotiations with uh, Mohammed bin Imam, who lowly became quite close to him. Of course, there was a World Cup bid later that probably changed a bit of that. But it's interesting, uh, the World Sports Group, uh, the people behind that, uh, they're, the, they're the ones that pull the commercial strings in Asia. And, and Lowy, and in particular John O'Neill, his CEO, had some really good um, connections with, with World Sports Group from his rugby union mm. days. And yeah, they Seamus. did a lot of the heavy lifting as well. Yeah, Seamus at World, World Sports Group. And they really helped Australia sort of, you know, smooth the path into there. And that's, that's how we got there, and it has been a good success. But like as I said, I think there's a long way to go with it yet. And so to go back to those embryonic days, Frank Lowy wanted John O'Neill, and John O'Neill knocked him back on at least two occasions before he eventually got him over the line. Tell us that story about how that emerged and, and then the importance of, of O'Neill in those early days. Well, well, I think one of the few people who didn't realise the Rugby World Cup was uh, was being hosted in Australia in 2003 was Frank Lowy. I mean, John O'Neill famously tells the story. He was then the CEO of the Australian Rugby Union. And here's the, you know, the, the biggest event in his sport taking place, and he gets this phone call. It was actually one of Lowy's sons, Stephen, at the start, saying, "Listen, you know, it'd be great if you could uh, if you could meet Dad." And uh, you know, Frank says, "You know, what are you doing?" Uh, at the moment, well, you know, Frank, we've got a World Cup we're about to host. Oh, goodness me! Okay, we'll have a give you a call after that. So it turns out they, you know, they, they sat next to each other at a lunch during the during the event. Uh, John Coates, who's the head of the Australian Olympic Committee, uh, had a fair bit to do with that. Coates is a good good mate of uh, O'Neill's and also is obviously close to Lowy. And uh, you know, he gets the gets the spiel again. You know, what are you doing? Well, there's a World Cup final on. Uh, on the uh, on the weekend, Frank. Okay, fine. I'll give you a call. I'll give you a call on Monday. And sure enough, Frank did. And uh, and so the dance began. O'Neill's had fallen out with some people at rugby union, and uh, and Lowy got him over to football. And look, it was a it was a, it was an amazing ride in that first couple of years. I mean, they you know, the NSL was disbanded, uh, the A League was formed, the Asia story, and uh, of course the famous Uruguay playoff as well. Those were the three massive achievements. And O'Neill had a lot to do with them. Did um, Frank have a Good partnership with his CEOs, O'Neill, Buckley, and uh, of recent times, Gallup. Did he? Would he listen to them? Look, to a certain extent. I mean, Lowy does say he's, um, you know, he, you know, he consults widely, uh, and I think that's probably part of him trying to position his legacy. I know some of his uh, his CEOs have said that to me as well. That, oh, of course, he listens to a lot of people, but 
I think uh, I think the stories are you know pretty summed up pretty well by the, a good tale I've heard uh, of during A League owners meeting where you know Lowy slams his fist down on the table and says, "Listen, gentlemen, you know this is why we, all, the, all the owners are sort of around him. Let me remind you, this is not a democracy." And I think it's <laughs> I think uh, Lowy uh, you know ruled with an iron fist at times, and and he he was always a pain to say he's not an executive chairman, but he was I think he was that with anything but name. So look, he. he he had a lot to do with everything. You know, he was in negotiations with prospective club owners. He was doing. He was trying to cut deals with the Clive Palmers and the uh, Nathan Tinklers to get them out of football. Mm. He was having a lot to do with. Uh, you know, the Wanderers being formed by FFA, the expansion strategy. He, his fingerprints were all over it. So, look, I think he did have good relationships. Probably, probably uh, O'Neill. He pushed the hardest. O'Neill pushed back the hardest. And that sort of uh, relationship. You know, that sort of. I guess you know, uh, uh, tension between them produce some outstanding results. And uh, some of the, the downsides of the financial legacy over the journey clearly are the failed clubs of the A-League, the Gold Coast United, North Queensland Fury type teams. Uh, not enough planning went into these teams, uh, uh, preparatory work that wasn't done, but contrasted by the, the great success of the Western Sydney Wanderers. Yeah, that's right. And look, the World Cup did have a lot to do with uh, you know, the strategy pushing, pushing to those... Um, those Queensland markets, particularly Townsville, with the, the, the Fury, uh, look, was it uh, was it a bit, all a bit hasty? Not exactly well planned. Hindsight tells us that's definitely the case. They lost a lot of money up there, and there's still some you know franchises that are pretty tenuous today. It probably goes back to the model that we have, you know, the, the ownership model. Where uh, and Lowy has said, and he said to me in an interview that I did last week with him that you know it'd be great if we had community clubs, but you know the clubs aren't sustainable enough yet. Uh, community-owned clubs, I mean. So, you know, we need need those owners to put, keep putting money into their pockets. I mean, uh, you know, Lowy's done a great job of convincing them to do so without putting a lot of his money at risk in the first place. But there is, yeah, still question marks around the financial viability of the league even today. A question that is probably difficult, almost impossible to answer, but uh, has anyone put a number on the dollars that Frank Lowy has actually invested out of his own pocket? Would you be prepared to have a, a guess at that? We did um, we did uh, look at that and and look it, it is actually it is not actually a lot when it comes down to it. He did not put a lot of money in personally. He was an owner, uh, and he still remains has a very small stake in Sydney FC. So there's a few million dollars there in startup capital to start with. Uh, back in the day, there's probably some you know some some other calls uh, you know for more capital as that as time went on. Now Westfield's been a big sponsor um, of FFA and of you know the Matildas, uh, Socceroos to a certain extent. Uh, you, we've got the Westfield uh, FFA Cup, but that's not Lowy's money directly, right? That's a, that's a publicly listed company. That's effectively shareholder funds that are being used in that sponsorship. So, no, Lowy has, has said, and he's stressed time and time again, that he did not want to be you know, the banker for the game. He did not want the game to keep coming to him for money because that, if that kept happening, the game would never grow enough to stand on its own two feet. And I think that's probably fair enough. Like he's not the owner of the sport. He is the chairman. He may well have ruled in a dictatorial manner, but it's not up to him to put his put his uh, hands in his pocket. I mean, maybe now, although he has ruled out uh, being an owner of a club, there is talk of some sort of a uh, future fund that perhaps he'll donate to, but uh, that remains to be seen. So if that's the case then, just why does he have so much power such that he's able to, and he denies it, and his son Stephen denies it, everyone involved in the head office deny it, but the general perception amongst the, 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 the public is that uh, that his uh, son Stephen's been handballed the job. Admittedly, an immensely qualified uh, uh, businessman in his own right, but uh, but if he if he hasn't 
made that financial investment on a personal level, where where does that uh, ability exist to to pretty much shoehorn his son into the uh, the top spot? I think it's his standing in the Australian community, really. I mean, it's the power that he can exercise. I mean, you know, the Financial Review we we do a list, you know, a list of the most powerful people in business every year in politics and so on and so forth. Lowy is always amongst the most powerful names. His connections are, are what you know what 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 gets him places. I mean, you go back to when he uh, you know when he was convinced to come back and uh, be the chairman of of what was then Soccer Australia. I mean, it was the Prime Minister of Australia that rings Lowy and says, "We need you." And Lowy says, well, yeah, of course he's only, he's got my number. And my relationship went back to, this is John Howe, went back to when he was treasurer in the Fraser government, you know, back in the late 70s, early 80s. He is an immensely powerful person in the Australian business community. And because of that has, you know, political influence. He knows a lot of people. So, you know, he can pull strings to get, you know, people to, to cough up sponsorship funds, to, you know, to do broadcast deals, to do, you know, to become club owners. I mean, there's, there's a lot of club owners today with connections. Uh, you know, with him, including you know Paul Letter, who put up uh, you know a lot of money to buy the Western Sydney yep. Wanderers off off FFA. So that's his, I guess, his web of influence uh, is cast a long way around Australia, and uh, that's where his power comes from. John, so we summarise his achievements in you know um, securing a berth into the Asian Football Confederation. Um, obviously, the establishment of the A League, uh, the success of the Socceroos in the World Cup campaigns. Um, obviously, the one glaring downside is the failed World Cup bid and there's been a lot of um, a lot of a lot said about that uh, there's been a lot said about um, the negativity of the, the you know the consultants so whether they were credible or not the their, their background all those types of things um, how how hurt is Frank Lowy about uh, what happened in the World Cup bid oh he's devastated by that and he, and he continues to be to this very day I mean I think uh, you know a lot of that is probably you know embarrassment and uh, you know a, a real dent to his pride as as being such a successful person. I mean, it, it you know he, he he really got duped. I mean, well to a certain extent. Look, I, I will say I think they knew exactly what they're getting into in terms of the you know, dirty tricks that go on at FIFA. They chose to try and you know look the other way and play the game as hard as possible, and you know hopefully reap the benefits of hosting a World Cup if uh, if, if they got enough votes. It didn't happen. So it looks even worse uh, than, than you know the, what it might have been otherwise. I think uh, I think yeah. Look, he, he absolutely. I mean, he, he'll you know he still talks about it today. That you know he wakes up in the middle of the night, you know, thinking about it, worrying about it. Uh, you know, that, that has tainted his legacy in what has otherwise been you know, been a pretty successful stint. You know, in a uh, in a sport, there's no doubt about it at all. I mean, still all the questions he gets asked are really around that World Cup bit. I mean, it's been five years since that bid was decided, and it's still a controversial topic. It just shows you how big a deal it is and how much of a stain on his uh, reputation it is as well. But ultimately, in hindsight, John, it's probably a positive because it shows that he was a, a uh, an upright businessman. John, we're going to have to say farewell. Thanks again, as always. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again next time on Box to Box. Thanks, gentlemen, anytime. And don't forget you can buy John Stensholt's book, A-League, The Inside Story of the Tumultuous First Decade of the A-League for Christmas. Next up after the break, we've got Ben Soro-Perez and his roundup of football in Europe. Box to Box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. And now for his weekly insight into all things Europe, former Brighton and Hove Albion insider Ben Soro-Perez. 
Hi, Rob. Good to have you back, mate. And uh, it's been a, a sad week in uh, in Europe uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, who would have thought when we uh, broadcast the program last week that uh, that we'd be having a conversation this week about an international terrorist attack that uh, that took place on the uh, on the very uh, day that a, a major football match was being played. I was watching that game on ESPN as it occurred. Uh, heard the noise, wondered what was going on. Saw the players uh, just take a pregnant pause and then go on with the game and uh, and it wasn't until within half an hour I think that the news started to break around the world that uh, the Paris attacks had occurred Yeah it was a sad sad day football, sad day all round really I don't think you know in, in these sort of situations sport it does unite people but it does sort of pale in significance um, at the same time um, and alongside that note there were Lasana Diara the French midfielder I think he lost a, a relative um, in cousin, one of the attacks, yep. yeah, um, and I think Anton Griezmann's sister, or it's someone in his yeah, family, she who was, knew, was at the, outside the of the Butterclan concert. Yeah, yeah so um, it obviously it, it struck home um, quite significantly, I think, with with the French players, um, mm. alongside obviously just society as a whole. But one of the things that uh, that did strike me um, in all of that that occurred, it seems that according to the reports that we're hearing, that the suicide bomber who attempted to gain access to the Stade de France had a ticket to get in but was uh, was pulled up by the security there. And then when he exploded his suicide vest, he only managed to kill himself. So you could just imagine the carnage that would have gone on inside that ground had he have got in. So I guess in light of what's going to happen next year with the Euros... Uh, this is the way that rea- they reacted, not knowing that there was a potential threat. Perhaps they did have some intelligence, but uh, but it, it was a good sign for the game that uh, that the the guy wasn't able to get into the stadium and um, and create even more havoc. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, and I think looking ahead to the international tournament next summer, um, the authorities will be looking at measures implemented um, in the states, for an example. Uh, where they have the clear bag policy. So now if you want to go to a sporting event, you know, it has to be in a bag of a certain size. Uh, it has to be clear for people to uh, to see what is in there. Um, you know, I think there's only so far you can go with those things um, logistically uh, with regards to the numbers that you'll have turning up. Mm. Uh, but I think it's certainly a consideration that they'll be making um, in light of, of what has happened. Um, ben, obviously, um, France played England uh, just recently, three or four days after the after the game. Um, one of the items that stood out for me was um, the rendition of the French national anthem um, at Wembley. It yeah. was it was outstanding, and um, I know that you've got a story about uh, hearing about people, English football fans, travelling to the match in the train, learning the words to the French national anthem. I think we've got a grab of that. Why don't we listen to that first and come back and have a talk? Yeah, I think it's it was a nice, you know, sight to see football coming together like that. And uh, and you're right, yeah. Some friends of mine were actually going to the game, um, and they spoke about uh, on social media. And when I spoke to them very briefly about the camaraderie generally um, on the way to the game with the French fans on the trains, with you know, with English fans as well, and people making the effort to to learn not necessarily all the words, but part of it, so that you know, alongside the minute silence, they could show that unity. Um, 
at such a time. And there was a lot of unity. I listened to a lot of uh, talk sport from London, a lot of uh, uh, the uh, the BBC Five, and uh, even the, the presenters were, were buying into the conversation. They had uh, French journalists on, and uh, and there was a, a lot of solidarity there, and uh, it really was apparent throughout everything that was done during that game, and, uh, and, and it was just great to see that not only did the game go ahead to, to make a statement to the world and to uh, um, the, the terrorists that uh, that they will not take control and that they will not run the show, uh, that it was played in uh, in safety and uh, admittedly the result uh, was uh, of no consequence. Uh, Deli Alley, a magnificent first half goal that will be consigned to, uh, to history. One day he may reflect on that wonderful debut as a 19 year old, the Milton Keynes man, but uh, but that wasn't the story of the night. It was all about uh, uh, about unity and, and how the world game can bring the world together. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, and I think Roy Hodgson touched on that uh, in his post-match press conference um, when he referred to the event um, as uh, as quite a poignant remark. Um, well, it was a very poignant occasion. I think that uh, it was really everything I expected it to be. I thought the way that the the FA and the French FA set up the the uh, what can we call it? I don't know that ceremony is the right word, but the the remembrance service if we call it that before the game started I thought that was that was very very well done I thought the players getting together for the, for the minute silence the staffs of the two teams getting together all the things that we wanted to achieve I thought were achieved in, in, in that moment there and then of course people had to put that aside and play a game of football you know two, two good teams in my opinion and uh, leave that side behind because once the whistle blows it all became about the actual game of football itself and I think he makes a nice point with regards to, you know, the whistle blowing um, and it does get back to football. Um, I don't think at these times, you know, there's necessarily such a, a thing as a welcome distraction. Um, but I think after, you know, the remembrance had been paid and the national anthem and the minute silence, uh, it was quite nice, you know, to, to reaffirm to people out there of, you know, whatever belief they may have and their political allegiances that life does go on. Um, Ben, that's good. I think let's move on, hey? Let's, why don't we look at uh, the Premier League returning this weekend um, and starting off with United's uh, trip to the top flight newbies, Watford. Yeah, heading down. Um, obviously, Watford back in after uh, the promotion season last year. So, um, Van Hull will certainly be be looking at this as a three points. Um, I think it's in previous years, perhaps under Ferguson and when United were playing much better, uh, more pleasing football on the eye it would have been a given three points but you never know what you're going to get with Van Halen with Anthony Martial out um, following his injury with the French team you know Rooney hasn't necessarily looked himself for United so it'll be interesting to see what they how they line up what they go with and with only two wins from their last seven games in all competitions Chelsea welcome the Canaries to the bridge surely that's not possible Surely that's not possible. Oh, you you wouldn't have thought so, but I don't think many people predicted them slipping up to Stoke either. Um, it, you never know what you're going to get with Chelsea at the minute. They're you know they're fairly confident on the ball. They have a lot of possession, but they they don't seem to be doing anything with it. Be that because Costa's misfiring or Hazard's not playing well or Fabregas leading a revolt, whatever you know side of the fence you're on, um, there are issues there. Um, Norwich they took a goalless draw away from Stamford Bridge when they were last there um, 
it does it is quite unlikely that that happens again this time but i don't think you can rule it out completely absolutely and what about um, aston villa's trip to goodison park 23 goals between those two teams in their last six meetings um you'd be looking at the uh the multi-goal mix in that uh, in that game wouldn't you oh certainly um Again, Villa are rooted to the bottom of the table. Um, they don't seem to be able to stop anything going in at one end and they don't seem to be able to find a way past opposition defences at the other. Um, Everton are, I think, slowly improving every week. Um, they got some confidence um, and I, I'd i be surprised if they didn't if they didn't win quite comfortably here. You're listening to News Talk Sport on NTS Box to Box. This is Ben Soro Perez talking the European game and the Premier League. Leicester, they've confounded all of their early season critics. We've talked about them a few times before. Jamie Vardy, he's on track to break a record. Yeah, he is. Yeah, if he if he scores, um, it makes it 10 consecutive um, games in which he will have scored, which equals... Uh, Ruud van Isselrooy's record from his time at United. I mean, the interesting thing about these two records is van Isselrooy set his over the last five games mm. of one season and the first five of the other. So technically there was a break in that. So Vardy's in sort of uncharted territory in terms of consistency um, within a one-season one spell, but we don't know if he's going to play. He sat out the, the England fixtures um, with a, a bit of an injury. Um, if he doesn't play, that run will come to an end. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, perhaps you know what what has been overlooked here is before the the Premier League days, uh, Jimmy Dunn of Sheffield United was uh, actually has the record, um, finding the net in twelve games back in the nineteen thirty one thirty two season. So it's uh, it's not a necessarily the record it's being built up to be. It's just one that I think bears acknowledging in the the era of the Premier League. And briefly, Liverpool's trip to the Etihad that could be the game of the weekend. Yeah, I've. One of those things, isn't it? Klopp is still finding his feet um, since arriving. Daniel Sturridge is purportedly ready to go and back in training and ready to get off the mark. Uh, City could be welcoming Sergio Aguero back. Um, they're top of the table. They've they've looked a more confident side. And um, you know, you, you know, Liverpool. An interesting story came out that they actually overlooked Deli Ali uh, in the summer. Um, and prior to that, Brendan Rodgers had tried to sign him. The transfer committee deemed he wasn't a worthwhile investment at the time. He's gone to Spurs. He's now an England international 19. Um, and Liverpool are crying out for central midfielders. And the final spots in the Euros have been claimed. The Republic of Ireland, uh, after all those years since the Thierry Henry handball, uh, they get their, their uh, karma back. Uh, Sweden, uh, thanks to uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Ibrahimovic. <laughs> I got that out eventually. And... Uh, and uh, the Ukraine have qualified as well. Yeah, I, it's one of those things, isn't it? You always like to see a team that have perhaps necessarily, you know, harshly done by previously getting getting their time in the limelight. Mm-hmm. So I think it was refreshing to see Michael O'Neill's side qualify. Uh, you, you can never rule out Ibrahimovic, even if he is a bit of a, a one-man show at times. Um, carried carried Sweden through again. And I'm looking forward to seeing the Ireland fans. The Ireland yeah. fans, some of the best going around in world football. Yeah, and there's a great... Uh, uh, email going around now about uh, Scotland and uh, and the the whole of the UK uh, blanked out and uh, and and the, the bench team being Scotland I showed it to a Scottish mate today and uh, the wry grin that he gave me made me feel glad that I was stepping out of punching distance away from him yeah I can imagine it's they're an odd team Scotland you think they've they've got it going it looks mm. like it's in the bag and and they, they managed to, to throw it away. They pulled defeat from the jaws of victory. Extra time goal, that was the end of it. You feel sorry for them, and they did the same in the Rugby World Cup as well. Yeah. Ben, thanks as always. It's been great, mate. Next up, stoppage time with Mark Van Aken. 
Box to Box. Can you believe it? The Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Welcome back. You are with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley on Box to Box on NTS News Talk Sport on digital radio, streaming on the NTS app. You can also search for NTS on Tune In Radio. And it is stoppage time. The fourth official has put the board in the air. There are six minutes left in the show. And Mark Van Aken, we welcome back. Well, cheerio off the top, uh, boys, to uh, suspended FIFA boss. Sepp Blatter apparently got our flowers. He got our card last week, so he's uh, back on his feet. He's uh, tried to get his suspension lifted during the week. No dice. Uh, Michel Platini was in the same boat. Uh, so those 90-day suspensions will stand. Enough said. Zing. Mm-hmm. Done. Thank you. Sorry, Sepp. Uh, now, this is an interesting one. German discount chain Ladle has been appointed the official supermarket of the England football team, reports The Guardian. Now, from Tuesday, the grocer will be the official supplier. This is sexy news. I know, Rob, I can see you. Uh, The official supplier of water, fish, fruit and vegetables for Roy Hodgson's boys under a multi-million pound three-year deal with the FA. Uh, But the Guardian questioned, hopefully tongue-in-cheek, hopefully that was the tone, has England gone to two world wars just to have its football team sponsored by a German supermarket? (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. Look, I've had enough of you, Mark. We're going to push Mark aside. No more in stoppage time because horse hitting... He's I know. Road. Look, we do. We've we got do. a special guest. Yes, look, let's we, get him in nah, here. We, we, we tend to to uh, go with the lead stories when the lead star- stories are on offer, but we did bury the lead because we were working yeah. on this guest. It is the it's ten year anniversary of Australia qualifying for the two thousand and six World Cup. We've been in contact with the Dutch FA, with the FFA, with everyone around world football, and it finally broke in the last five minutes that Gus Hiddink was available to join us on the program. And Gus, we welcome you as our special guest to Box to Box. Yeah, hoi and avant, how are you? It's good to be uh, here after 10 years. Welcome back to Australia, Gus. And, uh, uh, thank you, Val. We'll reflect on your uh, memories of that wonderful night on November 16, 2005. Is there anything that really stands out for you? Yeah, of course. Uh, I know there's a documentary on the TV uh, this week on the Fox uh, Sports. And uh, we spoke about uh, Graham Arnold, who's my assistant coach in the team. And uh, he was sitting on the bench, you might have seen, and chewing the gum. And I turned to him. And I say, spit out your gum, Arnie. You look like Mr. Ed. And of course, if you don't know, if you're too young, Mr. Ed was a talking hoss. Uh, some people say Arnie is a horse's ass, but this is not very nice. Uh, Huss, um, that's terrible to say that about Graham. Yeah, I know I, he's that's why I say it is not, it's not nice. No, it's not nice. No. Tell us about um, uh, Monday night. Uh, you went back to the stadium and yeah. um, you got to catch up with Scott Chipperfield. What's your memories of Chippers? That Chipper was a good player and uh, he a good bus driver, which was handy because Homebush is a long way from the city. Uh, so it's uh, drive me home after. The only thing, uh, ANZ Stadium, the beers, they cost uh, about $15 each. So I wasn't very happy with that. I made Stan Lazaridis pay because Stan Lazaridis, sorry, uh, pay because uh, he did nothing for the team at the World Cup. So I thought maybe he owes me something. And Hus, uh, yeah, you me. were... <laughs> You were famously prevaricating as to which goalkeeper. Sorry, you would in choose. English, I don't understand. You were yeah. uncertain which which goalkeeper you were going to yeah, choose. Yeah, Spider. Whether... Spider was there Monday. It looked like mafia, but uh, uh, I'm going to go him or Schwarzer. And of course, because I'm Dutch, I, I shouldn't choose the German keeper. Uh, but I meet him, and he's a good guy, and leave him in there. But I like to keep them. Uh, yeah, of course, guessing who he's going to be. And look, I use Spider against Croatia. In Stuttgart. For it worked the, out well. Yeah, it was a good move for me. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he didn't do too bad, did he? 
<laughs> the goal underneath his legs. I mean, yeah, it's okay. But uh, people come uh, to ask me this week, uh, do I follow the A-League back in Holland? And I said, well, I've been in Russia and in, in London. And I'm sorry but to say this, but if you don't actually have a team in the A-League, as if you would be watching it. <laughs> yeah, this is Pim for Bake we're talking to. No, it is not. PM PM is bad. He's got a bad attitude for the Australian game. I love the Australian game, uh, guys. I love being back here in Australia. Uh, they said to me to throw throw a shrimp on the Barbie. I thought that was very rude to Mr. Lowey, so I didn't do that. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, they say I've been asked to come back uh, to be coach, but I think Angie, Angie Postacoglu is your name. That's the name? That's yeah, the coach. he's doing a nice job. And I can't believe it is 10 years since I've been in Australia and you still haven't legalized weed. So that's one reason I cannot come back. I mean, I'm from Holland. You can put Tway and Tway together, right? Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, anyway, it is different for me now back at home. I'm not in Russia anymore. Oh, I, I can't do it anymore. Yes, welcome. Mark Van Aken, you're a man of many talents, and one of those is to pull There was the not voice. the question about what I missed from Russia? Okay. No, uh, it wasn't this, what what did you miss from Russia? Uh, I missed the little dolls. Yeah, you get a little doll, and uh, you open the doll, and inside there's another doll, and you get it, and then there's another doll inside. It's amazing. Country. That's, amazing. Uh, that's called a babushka. Great culture. Babushka. babushka is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice. I like it. It's very, you get one, and other one. There's so many inside. And on that note, Michael Edgley, Mark Van Aken, Aussie goose hitting. Mark, you enjoy that, yeah, don't you? I've given yeah. you husbands, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> well done. That has been Box to Box on digital radio, on the NTS app, on TuneIn Radio. It's been another great show, Edge. We've had a lot of good fun. We've had good fun with course. We've talked the serious side of the game and, and some of the sadness over the past week, but it's nice to end with a laugh. So that is Box to Box for another week. Join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other.